Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Matters podcast series. This is our 63rd, just amazing to me, 63rd of these. And we want to thank thousands of you, which we've been keeping track of, who've listened over the all of these. So appreciate your feedback. Please let us know how we're doing. We hope that the listens counts and means that you are, but by all means, let us know ways we can make these better and what we should talk about. So reach out and we'd be happy to do that. Today, we are honored to have a dear friend and a expert in this particular area, uh, Cindy Huggett. So great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's an honor. It is great to have you here, my friend. You are uh, well known by many friends and, and folks across the industry for your great work in virtual instruction and design and such. You've written a number of books on this thing. You are a sought out expert and speaker. We are so honored to have you here. And this is a hot topic. This is a remarkable time in our industry on a lot of levels in our world in a lot of levels. But Really, the sweet spot you're sitting in is an important one and relative to five moments and performance support and workflow learning, just such remarkable blend and um, support. So let's take a step back. I always do this for my guests. I don't do the bio thing and read the thing. We kind of just get into our conversation by your journey here. So will you please give us how you got here, my friend, and why you are so passionate about this particular topic? Sure thing. So I have been in and around workplace learning for the last 30 years, and I was mm. working inside organizations, training manager, training director. But about 20 years ago, in the early 2000s, I was inside an organization working and was told to cut my budget, stop traveling, mm. but still provide training to my global workforce. So I needed to very quickly find some solutions. And WebEx had been released. My organization had a copy of it. And I thought if our executives can meet using this web conferencing technology, maybe I can start using it for training. So I started back in the early 2000s, putting on classes, converting my in-person classes online. And at the time, there was no manual on how to do it. I just started figuring what I knew about adult learning, about workplace learning, about technology. I had a little bit of a technology background and started putting them together. So when I went out on my own in 2004, I thought I'll do some consulting and HR and training, but I kept getting asked, well, how are you doing this virtual thing? How are mm -hmm. you using this online technology for your learning? And so very quickly, I started writing and speaking and teaching and the bulk of my consulting business over the last now 17 going on 18 years wow. has been consulting with global organizations how to do virtual training well it used to be that we talked about strategy what workshops should you move online what facilitators mm. should you select to do virtual but as we all know now that yep. everything's virtual the conversation has shifted from what should go online to how do we do it well how do we engage how do we measure results and, and everything around it you know it's interesting we tell a story about um, one of my colleagues who is a senior learning director and he had tried for a couple of years to get one of those platforms in there, 
right? And then the infamous pandemic hit. And he got a phone call from the CEO of the company who he'd only ever seen on video, never met personally, even though he was a senior learning guy. Mm-hmm. And they wanted him to stand the thing up in four weeks. You know, wow. I mean, it was this remarkable blitz, right? Mm-hmm. Towards all this wonderful stuff. But let me start off with my favorite part of this thing. And that is it often happens. You've, you and I have been around enough to see the rush towards technology. Mm-hmm. I was in the early e-learning days Mm -hmm. and we put really great classes up really badly on (laughs) websites, right? Mm -hmm. And then we got into all these other technologies and and so on. And so we've seen a rush to this, clearly. A lot simply flipped is Mm -hmm. the word I like to use, Mm -hmm. I-L-T to V-I-L-T, right? And there's been some misses. And in some organizations, frankly, I even argue that it's taken kind of a hit because it was done Again, nothing was malicious, but it was kind of done so, if I may, badly. Now, again, not on purpose, mm-hmm. um, that I think in some organizations, just rushing back to ILT yeah. um, because they think VILT, believe it or not, can't work, yeah. can't do their courses. What misses have you seen, my friend, in that rush to technology in our industry that you would talk to folks about being a little leery of or careful? I think that's a really interesting question and a great place to start. And if we can put organizations in two different categories, those who were doing virtual before 2020, Mm, right? They've been doing it for a while. And then those who had to really quickly pivot and flip everything online, because I think we see two different reactions, two different types of results. Now, I think you're right. Both categories have missed opportunities, but we do see slightly different. Those who had already gotten a head start, I think uh, some of the ATD research, if I'm recalling the number correctly, back in 2018, 2019, it was about 14 or 15 percent of all Mm. formal learning hours were done in the virtual classroom. So Mm. it's pretty significant, but not a lot compared to 2020, 2021, where it was 80, 90% online. So what happens is when you go to convert from in-person to online, you have this, let's say one day workshop, eight hour workshop. And one of the most common mistakes is, well then, okay, that translates to an eight hour online virtual class. No, it doesn't, (laughs) right? Not at all. The best designs are the ones that really looked at that content and decided, well, what can the learners do on their own? And Mm. what can we bring people together for? Let's turn this into a blended journey. Let's create what makes sense. But so many organizations either because of a a false thinking or because of necessity. I was doing it eight hours last week and Mm. now next week I need to do it eight hours online, right? They just switched. And so that, that timing issue, that's number one. There's two others. Number two is taking a really interactive program in person where we were doing role plays or hands-on practice and then moving it online and turning it into a presentation, thinking that just a demonstration or talking to slides equated to the same learning outcomes. And we know they didn't. We know that that's where virtual learning, unfortunately, has gotten a bad rap because so much of it was just turned into a presentation and check the box, let's call it learning. The third one is similar, but slightly different. And that is most of our in-person formal workshops are for smaller groups, 15 people, 20 people, maybe Mm. 25 or 30. But when you go to an online platform, they can fit 100 or 200 or 300 people. And so 
either to save money or to save on resources. We don't need to offer as many classes. We don't need as many trainers and facilitators. We're just going to put a lot of people in the classroom. Well, no wonder we're not getting the same results if we're trying to compare an interactive small group learning experience with a one-hour webcast that's presentation. And we've done so much damage. And I think both groups of organizations have done that. Mm. But the ones who quickly pivoted probably saw those mistakes or those challenges a little more often and are just now realizing, oh, we need to step back and look at how are we skillfully designing virtual learning to be successful. And I love your pivot on skillful design. You know, my in my 40 years at this, which will be September 6th this year, I've seen so many remarkable technologies get kind of square peg round hold, right? And that that's yeah. kind of the interesting thing here. You know, the early learning days were, again, really good PowerPoints that mm-hmm. with, an, with an engaging instructor and all the kind of interaction a classroom brings, brilliantly done in that domain, put on a two-dimensional screen with a back and forward button, a voiceover. And we we thought we'd get the same result. We've done this over and over and over again in our industry. It just amazes me why we think that would be different in this kind. So you're so right. And I want to get deeper into the design issue as we go further into this. You know, obviously this podcast is biased on the workflow, Mm -hmm. right? It's all about performance first. It's all about the five moments. It's all about workflow learning. I and my colleague, Dr. Goffertson feel and have a bias that virtual instruction saves the day. Mm-hmm. We really believe it does. We believe here, we've heard about blended forever. I, th- I think a blended ILT is hard to do mm-hmm. relative to other things, if nothing else, because of the logistics you described. Mm-hmm. But those go completely out the window in the power of this domain. Mm-hmm. So how do you see virtual instruction play a critical role in this, in, in helping our industry maybe more easily than ever get into a true workflow embedded type of an approach to instruction? I think that is the the billion dollar question, Bob, because (laughs) honestly, right, I agree. I agree with you. I agree that virtual facilitator-led, virtual instructor-led training is the sweet spot in learning, in helping our participants around the clock, around the globe, around the organization learn, because there's so much that they can learn on their own out of necessity in those moments of need. At the same time, a really skilled facilitator with an interactively designed program is what can help tie that learning together. And let me share an example, just a recent example that I can think of. So in my free time, when I'm not doing virtual training, I'm actually a yoga teacher. And I have been doing some continuing education to keep my certification active. And because of COVID, lots of instruction has gone online. So I'm doing this continuing education course in yoga, could be any topic, but Mine just happens to be this one. And the way the program was structured Mm. is that all of the mechanics, the learning of names and poses and things, I can read about that. I can watch videos, but we're coming together as a group with the expert instructor to ask questions, Mm -hmm. you know, help me clarify, help me understand, help me see this in context, help me uh, get a better grasp on what I'm learning on my own. 
And we're doing that through virtual instructor led. So we're coming together at set periods of time throughout learning and everyone's at a different point in their yep. learning. Everyone's at yep. a different point and where they are in, in their teaching credentials and who they're working with. We have very different backgrounds, but being able to get together with an expert for short periods of time to get our questions answered, to reflect has been such a powerful learning experience. And that's what I think of in the workplace. We're learning how to be a better leader, how to do customer service, how to bring return on dollars and investment for our organization, how to be more efficient, right? You name it, whatever those yep. work skills yep. are, having a facilitator who's skilled, who can help you reflect, digest, answer questions, collaborate, communicate, it's like icing on the cake and it's where we really bring value. So powerful. Yeah. I mean, the classroom, as much as I love it, um, I think in many ways contained us more than we knew. Mm -hmm. I think it forced us to do kinds types of instruction or things to instructions, probably a better mm -hmm. word, more than we realized, like over teaching, mm -hmm. right? Like, to, like covering everything <laughs> because it was our one shot wonder, right? When, when you took, when you take those walls down physically and open the world virtually, the time framing of instruction goes out the window. The length of instruction isn't an issue so much anymore, which was so much driven by logistics. Right. And, and sometimes by sheer content, not by mm -hmm. true instruction and design. Mm -hmm. And this wonderful couple words called blended learning came along yeah. a few years back. As my dear colleague, Dr. Gofferson often says, he thinks we misnamed it. He thinks we should have called it blended training, not mm -hmm. blended learning, because mm -hmm. in his opinion, it was it was really more of a of a logistical shift. Mm -hmm from five days of X to two, couple of learnings thrown around it. But in his mind, it was still a training pivot mm -hmm. on, on training people on content. Yeah. This technology comes along and all of a sudden blended learning across the months, years of leadership, weeks of onboarding can now be done in a contextual way that blended learning, I think, meant to be all the way. What, what's your feeling about that pivot for us so I think a couple of things are surfacing to mind, Bob, and one of them is if we think about formal learning, think about a, a process, somebody needs to learn how to do a task or, or how to follow a process, that there's three things that make it successfully lead to performance results. And one is a design that is interactive, that's in context that's relevant. So we've got that design yep. bucket, yep. right? And then we have the, the facilitator bucket, that facilitator who can focus on the learner, who's more of the coach or the guide there. But then we also have the participants, the, the motivation, the do they have the equipment or technology that they need? Do they have the resources? And when we think about it, when I think about it, at least in those three buckets, I think that we often muddle the mm. two, we might only focus on two of the three, or we might mm. only focus on one of yeah. the three yeah. and forget if, for example, as a facilitator, it's not about us and our presentation yep. and our, right, it's about <laughs> how are we going to enable the learners, right? Or we've got this beautifully designed program, but the participants aren't equipped with what they need. And so that piece is, is missing. And that's mm. actually one of the things that gives virtual learning a bad name because 
we're doing all of these, I'm going down a tangent here, Bob, I hope I don't okay. mind, but Go. we're doing all of these webcasts and, and webinars where, you know, let's come learn four things you can do to be a better XYZ task. And we lecture at them with 300 people in the room and we record yep. it and we make it available later. Well, then we use that same technology for our virtual instructor-led training. And we expect people to come on webcam and be engaged and not multitask. And we haven't communicated to them, no, this is different. This isn't one that you can eat your lunch and check your email. This is one where we're going to be in breakout groups and having you roll up your sleeves and do hands-on. And that mismatch of expectations gets in the way. So I think we've got a lot to think about. It's doable. It just needs to be thought about and intentionally planned. How are we going to design it well? How are we going to facilitate it well? And how are we going to get our participants prepared for what's expected of them? Yeah, I love that. When In my early days, my friend, I was at Microsoft and we bought Placeware. Mm -hmm. I remember that piece of stuff. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That many people may not know. It was the the early version (laughs) of what has now become, and the code's probably gone, frankly, but it was was Microsoft's Microsoft's first foray into that, right? And so what was interesting is the discussion became around, and they pulled in our learning team and said, let's do virtual instruction. Let's call it V-I-L-T, because it's virtual instructor-led training. But here's the problem, Cindy, we ran up against. People came in going, oh, I quite get this. It's it's instructor-led training virtually, and they came in with all the expectations of a classroom, the, the, the furrowed brow of the, you know, the, the instructor wandering the room and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and turning in pods to other people. Now, again, there's breakout rooms. They get all that kind of stuff. But my point is they came in because we branded it as such, they immediately went to what they knew of and had experienced as an in-person classroom. And mm-hmm. it didn't meet that expectation. Didn't mean it didn't live up to that expectation. It had a whole other area it could live up and should have lived up to. We just never went there. Yeah. You know, we kept it in that box of what we know before. So let's run a couple of design things to get a little deeper here. I have to run it a word because mm-hmm. this one bothers me. Hybrid. <laughs> Cindy, you know, it, it, let's it, talk it, about hybrid. Could we for a second? Because yes. I, I it, oh my gosh, by mm-hmm. the definition of what I mean by that word versus we talked about blended a moment ago is that the one I see often anyway, and by all means, you know, push back, but it, they mean it's like, I'm going to have 20 in the room sitting there. I'm going to have 20 at home on virtual stuff. This remarkable instructor will be up in front and know where to stand, move around and do and whatever. And I find them to be abysmally done. And again, I'm, I'm not attacking the, the designer, the trainer, the whole deal. I sure. think that's so hard. I know some remarkable instructors that would really and do struggle with that. What's your feeling on our run towards that and even the word and the branding when it comes to that? Well, we have to start with the definition because I I have done a couple of pulse surveys and, and checks. And in the workplace, we think of hybrid as you described it, where you have right. some audience in person and some audience online, and it's this co-located mixed audience. But in the university setting, in the K through 12 setting, when they say hybrid, they mean blended. They mean a college course that has got some synchronous, some asynchronous, and now they're graduating and coming to the workplace. And and we just cannot agree on what it means. So first of all, let's be clear. In the workplace, we're talking about a synchronous event. We're meeting at the same time, but some people are in a room and some people are online. Now, to complicate that even more, Some people assume that the trainer, the facilitator is in the room. 
but the right. facilitator could be remote. Sure. And then you also have the scenario of maybe you've got people in a conference room in New York City, another group in Dallas, and another group in Toronto, right? They're just three co-located groups yeah, yeah, that yeah, happen yeah. to be meeting together. So there's so mm. many configurations yep. of what we mean by hybrid. But assuming we're talking about this synchronous event, one-time event or yeah. series of events, and we've got mixed audience locations. So one of my books that I wrote back in 2016, the virtual training guidebook, I actually wrote about hybrid. I've been doing hybrid for a while, this type, and I wrote, don't do it. Don't do it. Avoid it. If you can avoid it, avoid it. Now, it's taken on a life of its own now that we have organizations reopening their offices after the pandemic sure. and they're trying sure. to accommodate sure. remote learners. And so this is why it's just such a buzzword right now. How do we keep having these in-person classes, but invite those in. Let's be inclusive mm. of those mm. who are not able to come into the audience. So the intent is good. Yep. The challenge is how do you make that an equal learning experience? The so, yeah. yes. So I, I should, full disclosure, Bob, I have a brand new book coming out later That's this awesome. year called The Facilitator's Guide to Immersive, Blended, and Hybrid Learning. Oh, good for you. So new yeah. book, very timely. Um, but a couple of things from both my experience and from my research that uh, are previews of what's in the book is, first of all, I still agree with the fact if you can avoid it, avoid it. How do mm. you do that? Well, it's let's say you have a formal uh, training program. Can you have a version of it that's for the in-person yep. audience and yep. then a version of it with the same learning outcomes, the same type of activities for your virtual audience? Have two parallel but separate programs. If you've got the resources as an organization to do that, do that. Now, mm. if you don't and you have to do hybrid, what do you have to do to do it well? Well, you need, uh, number one, a room setup, an in-person room setup that is equipped for hybrid. And many of the platform mm. vendors out there, uh, Zoom rooms, WebEx rooms, Teams, or, there's a number of them out there. We Connect from Barco is an organization I've been working with where they actually have equipment that mm. you can set up a room that creates good audio and clear video and helps people see one another to create a more equitable nice. experience, right? Nice. So you need the, the equipment. Can you do it yourself? Makeshift room? Of course you can, but you want to take time to think through, well, what's the camera placement? How are people going to hear each other? Number one. Number two, as a designer for that, how are you creating or converting activities that's going to be equitable yep. for those who are in person yep. and online? Yep. We want to invite the people who are in the room to have a device so that they could answer a poll question or use a shared whiteboard or be able to uh, take advantage of the tools that the virtual classroom has. So both remote and in person are going to have that same equipment. Now that creates a whole issue with audio connections and all. So yeah, you need yeah. a facilitator and a technical assistant or a producer who is easily able to say, well, join the platform 
answer the poll question, but don't connect your audio, right? Little things like that. Yep. Then you need a really skilled facilitator. You need a facilitator who knows remote first, who knows to make eye contact with the camera lens just as much as the in-person hmm. that Bob, I could keep going, but right. Things yeah. like the facilitator who's going to be much more structured in conversation so that people don't talk over each other and we don't end up with the side conversations in the in-person room because that excludes the uh, external remote employees or or audiences. So you need a really skilled facilitator who isn't also trying to manage the technology and manage the remote users and it takes takes a little bit of a village to make it work. So it can work, but it's not something you're going to decide today. Oh, let's do this tomorrow during yes. our, our workshop. A lot of advanced preparation goes in. And I think it. so many did, right? And I think that that's, I think that's where, again, like we talk, started this whole thing out with, I think that it's this rush to a thing and then think about design second. Yeah. I hate to say it like that, right? Yep. But just brilliant points. Let's bring in two last stakeholders, facilitators and IDs. You just hinted at it. This is a brave new world for these folks. And we watch the most brilliant certified Microsoft instructors who are our early volunteers at our at our efforts into virtual become these stale, flat, terrified, unengaging facilitators who we intentionally pulled from the live version that were the highest rated, most engaged, most loved, most passionate. And it was this two-dimensional thing, right? All, all the cues they'd learned to feed up of, knowingly or not, disappeared in their own way or showed up in a different way as they entered this domain. What advice would you give to instructors first in making this foray? What are the principles that make them good? And and, and if I have to change my content that I've written forever for that gifted, loud, hand-holding, raise hand, wander the room presenter, what principles do I have to keep in mind in design? So let's start facilitator first and let's then let's go to our IDs. So first, when we think about those facilitators who've made that leap, made that transition to the virtual classroom and done it well, they remember that it's not about their presentation, it's about their audience. And Mm -hmm. their goal is from the moment their learners log into the virtual classroom, that it's about conversation, it's about engagement, it's about um, building rapport and connecting with them and simple little things that you can do to make that happen. Number one, as a facilitator in the classroom, we usually are greeting people when they walk in. But for some reason, when we go online, we think, oh, I should just be silent or maybe play music (laughs) while people are, no, like we should be greeting them and talking with them and coming off mute and and not using mute at all. If, if you can help it, that we're greeting people and maybe having a call to action, uh, something Hmm. on screen to help get them into looking at the screen in the classroom and putting away their email, you know, the start of the program in person Usually it's the trainer spiel. Here's our agenda and our timing and our, we don't do that virtually. Instead, it's, hey, who's here? Let's connect on the topic, poll questions, chatting. Like we're jumping right into it. Really common mistake that facilitators make is they wait until 5, 10, 15 minutes in before they're asking a question and we've lost them by that time, right? What happens in the first few moments of the program is so important and that idea of sharing airtime. Let's say you have a slide that you might put on screen that has a few points on it. 
as a presenter, we feel like we need to read that. In a virtual classroom, we are sharing airtime. It's a discussion about what's on the board. It's a conversation. It's spending time in breakouts. It's much more about the audience than it is about us. And I think the facilitators who get that are yep. the ones who excel. One other quick example that people might be able to relate to, you know, such a common thing to do virtually is to ask your audience to type in chat, to ask a question and ask them to respond in chat. Well, it always takes a moment for your participants to think of their response and then start typing. So there's this lag time. And facilitators who are not comfortable with virtual, they get afraid of the silence, yep. even if it's just 10, 15, 20 seconds. And yep. then the moment somebody types in chat, they start talking about it. They yeah. start commenting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yep. somebody responded. Well, no one's listening right. because they're, they're still typing, typing their <laughs> comment. Yep. And then we're like the, the color commentator on a sports broadcast, just typing and talking along with what everyone's saying when really... We ask our audience to type in chat. We give them a moment to do that. We ask for them to elaborate on their comments or to get the conversation going about what they've typed in. So it's little things like that, small techniques that have really big impact. Brilliant. So my friend, the stuff that we designed for those gifted folks, what principles does a designer need to keep in mind versus the mindset around e-learning or a training class? A couple of things. Again, such a good question. And one of them is trying to stuff so much content into the program. I hear from facilitators frequently that, well, I don't have time to have a conversation because there's too much content in yep. this program. We already talked about it's not a one-for-one -one time frame change from in-person to online. But if we're going to have discussion, we need some time to have that discussion. So designers, my hope is that they're really thinking about what are we putting outside the virtual classroom for our audience to learn and not thinking of it in terms of pre-work and then a formal lesson, but it's part one, please go review the documentation or go watch mm. this video we created mm. for you. Yeah. And then part two with your colleagues will process through that, right? It's, it's shifting the mindset and I wouldn't even call that blended, but it's just, right. it's how we learn uh, for it. And if you have, I get pushback, but they won't do the on their own thing. So if you have an audience like that, maybe you schedule the program from eight to 12. And at eight o'clock, we show up in the virtual classroom. We meet each other. We say hello. And then I say, okay, you've got 30 minutes. Go do these five Ooh. things and yeah. we'll meet back here uh, after 30 minutes to process through that. Nice. So it's blocked on their calendar for, but we're not in the virtual classroom that whole time. We're in and out doing activities. So those are all design features. Yeah. How is the program structured? What are the activities we do? And the final thing I'll say about that is the virtual classroom is one that has tools like breakouts or the ability to for whiteboards and organizations who either quickly made the pivot or were trying to stuff a training program into a meeting platform or one that's not designed for that yep. type of interaction are really struggling. Their, their trainers are in make it work moments. Well, yep. I can't have them turn their camera on to uh, have them 
look at whatever because the platform doesn't allow for that. Looking at, are we really using a platform that's going to help us get the results we need? A little bit of organizational level, but designers can help influence that as well. That's brilliant. When we got done with our whole first four into this, and one of the most powerful feedback we got was from one of our more staunch objectors, if you will, to his credit, he tried. I ended up being one of our better ones, frankly, but he said, you know what? When I got done with this, I never looked at live instruction the same way again. This taught me so much about how much I crammed into class, how much I talked way more than I should have. When you sit around in a room present and I'm up in front of this as the SME who people paid to come to hear how some of them think it was, it was a very different thing. And, and just uh, levels of engagement. How often do I open questions? How often do I let them do things on their own? Even though they're in a classroom, I love the idea of a half hour before of just doing work, govern three hours for the time, use the first half hour to, to get that pre-work stuff done. You're still in class, right? But again, these are ways that we break the mold in thinking of how we look from the traditional model back. This is kind of going out from the beginning and your work's been groundbreaking in that my friend. So well, thank parting, parting words here. This is my favorite question to ask because we, we get so many remarkable experts on this podcast, people that have been at these things for years. Um, you've written multiple books on this with another one coming out, just spectacular. If you look back at your young self, because many who listen are, right? They, they don't have the years or the experience or the time and go, boy, if I'd only known, I would have been careful about, or I would have gone right to X, or I would have skipped Y entirely. What would you give advice to your younger self about journeying into this? As many who listen to this will be just beginning that trip. I can think of so many responses <laughs> to that question, Bob. Here's what I would go back and tell my younger self. I am passionate about teaching, training, and facilitating. I have loved it from my earliest memories of childhood throughout mm. my entire career. And anytime I have not been wide open in sharing what I've learned, I've mm. gone back and I've regretted that. If mm. I've thought, well, I'm too busy to stop and jot that down in a lessons learned document so that the next person to facilitate this class, or hmm. I'm too busy to hop on a podcast like this one to help share a tidbit with somebody. I've always regretted that yeah. thinking that, you know, that's something and, and for various reasons. And at the time, what seemed like good reasons, but I would encourage anyone we have tools to create community. We have tools that allow us to connect with others, whether we're in person or they're online tools. Uh, we've got chapters of like-minded individuals in our professions and, and meetups. It's the people part that's important, yep. so much more so than the tasks. And I would go back and remind myself, I would put signposts up because in hindsight, the places where I look back and regret are the places where I've said, you know, I'm not able to do that or, or even places where I could have helped myself by just stopping and uh, helping somebody else. So I think that, and I know that's a very generic. No, it's wonderful. But it's, it's the truth. It's what comes to the forefront of my mind. It's funny. I think there's, it's a time in our world where we need others more than ever. Mm -hmm. um, and those drawn to this profession are intrinsically passionate, compassionate, empathetic. And the world you've described for us throughout this podcast is, is one I think we need to embrace in ways you've shown. 
and can have us uh, reach out to those we serve in ways that we never could before. You know, my daughter's a mental health counselor. And she said that although the shift of virtual has been difficult because so much of that was perceived to be in person and, mu and much needs to be for a whole host of, of really remarkable reasons. But likewise, there's many who never got help because they were afraid to leave their home. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so she said, look, look what we can do now. Right. And, and the same in this world, in this space. So, Cindy, thank you so much for your passion around this. Your modeling as a lifelong learner, the remarkable information you share through your books, through your speaking, and through our podcast today. I know our listeners will so appreciate. And one last thing, how can they get a hold of you if they want to reach out further after this? What's the best way to, to find you, my friend? The easiest way is to go to my website, cindyhuggett.com. I've got a contact form. I have a newsletter I send out monthly. I love to hear from people who have benefited from my books or my webcasts or anytime you want to talk about virtual, immersive, hybrid, blended. I am here and would love to chat. Excellent. Thanks so much, my friend. They will be reaching out and we'll be circling back as well. Thanks again, Cindy. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.